0: You can now open the scriptures. You can read, open them to first Psalm one sixteen. We'll read Psalm one sixteen and after Psalm one sixteen we'll turn to two Corinthians four, the first twelve verses. First Psalm one sixteen. Psalm 116, I'll begin at verse 1. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me, I suffered distress and anguish then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. O Lord, I am your servant, I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds, and I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Now we can turn to 2 Corinthians 4, we'll read the first 12 verses. 2 Corinthians 4, and we'll begin at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For God, who said that light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. our reading, we'll read the text afterward. We can sing in response uh, Psalm 116. That'll be stanzas 1, 2, 6, and 7. Our text this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 4. And it will be verses 13 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4. We can read that before the message today. 2 Corinthians 4, and we'll begin verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so we do not lose heart, Our text. <laughs> Brothers and sisters of Canadian Reformed Church of Elora. Three months ago, I was ordained as the mission missionary pastor in the Grace Canadian Reformed Church of Brampton, The week before and after ordination was a whirlwind as we moved into our house the previous week. And in the weeks or the days following the move, we were very busy. We worked hard on packing our house. We set up the furniture, curtains, and other things. We took some joy in making trips to Home Depot, Costco, and Ikea to buy all those things you didn't think you needed, but suddenly you do need in a new house after years of low-income living during seminary, we were thrilled to finally have a large enough house to live in. We were thrilled to have enough income to buy decent furniture for once. And at the time, we thought to ourselves, you know, finally now we can properly live. Now we can live, you know? This is, this is what life is meant to be like. But as I was, at that exact time, As I was thinking this, I then saw a quote from C.S. Lewis. The quote goes like this. Prosperity knits a man to the world. Prosperity makes a man feel as if he's finding his way in the world. Well, in reality, it's the world that's finding its way in him. I'll read that again. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it. While really, it, the world, is finding its place in him. And this quote echoed through my mind for a long time afterward. Especially because it's so applicable to our text for today. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13 through 18. Because in the entire chapter of 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul keeps talking about the opposite of finding prosperity on this earth. In fact, throughout this passage, Paul keeps talking about suffering and dying. Verse 12, for example, he says, So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Death is at work in us, he says. And nowhere in this chapter does the Apostle Paul imply or or argue that he deserves to live a life without suffering and death. Nowhere. Nowhere does he wish for prosperity or comfort. He doesn't spend any time talking about a future house that he plans to decorate or build. He doesn't talk about his career plans other than the plans to preach the gospel. He doesn't talk about how his investments are doing. No. Throughout the chapter of 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul is pointing to a motivation for what he does that is infinitely grander than anything that this world has to offer. Something inspiring. Something that's captured by this theme. Though you suffer now for the gospel, take perspective by looking up how Christ will raise you out of this world into eternity. We'll see under this theme, resurrection faith and to eternal hope. Then we can begin with resurrection faith. Now, as we look at this passage, we need to remember what the Apostle Paul has actually been saying in the first two sections of chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4 is a defense of of Paul's apostolic ministry. That's what it is. And Paul had felt the need to defend himself because the believers in Corinth had been questioning his motives and his gifting. They had been questioning his sincerity as an apostle. And so in verses 1 through 6 of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul argues that the Corinthians are misguided in their critique of him. His ministry is about preaching Christ, not himself. And so when they criticize him, they miss the point of what his ministry is about. In verses 7 through 12, Paul argues that his humble, afflicted status is actually entirely appropriate for a messenger of the gospel. In fact, Paul says, my humble, afflicted status, well, it's not impressive to you. It's actually beneficial for the sake of the gospel because it serves to elevate the power of God instead of the power of the human messenger. In fact, he says, you know what? This humble afflicted status is all worth it if it means that you receive the gospel in a way that I don't distract myself or distract you from it. And so the great question that's then raised for our text, which starts at verse 13, And I've already alluded to it. The great question is that, the question that the Corinthians struggle to understand is this. Why is Paul so willing to voluntarily offer his life for the sake of the preaching of the gospel? Why is the Apostle Paul willing to endure troubles and hardships and distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger? For the sake of the gospel. What could possibly motivate a man to live like that? With a death of love so powerful that he would endure that for the sake of bringing the gospel to other people. What could motivate him to live like that? Really. And brothers and sisters, you know, I don't think that's just a question for the Apostle Paul, is it? Isn't that the question that we have to answer as well? I mean, certainly for us in the greater Toronto area, it's a question that's staring us right in the face, but it's no different for you. I mean, think of my own journey. Maybe you can reflect yourself onto it. It's a question I've been reflecting on for a long time. I mean, look, why go to seminary, really? Going to seminary entails the loss of future material rewards? Why move to a place like Brampton to do a job that I hardly know anything about? Why move to a neighborhood with full of cultures so different from mine? Cultures that make me uncomfortable. Neighborhoods that contain significant levels of crime. You see... For that kind of a thing, the paycheck in a house is pretty empty motivation, isn't it? It's not even capable of the most meager inspiration. Now, the love of the congregation and fixing up the home was motivating indeed. But the house, who cares? Brothers and sisters, wouldn't we want to ask the same question here today in Elora? Isn't it so easy to simply live the North American dream? We build up wealth, we rise up the career chain or start our own businesses. We decorate our homes in the newest schemes. We watch sports on the weekend, we vacation to interesting places. Maybe we grow our golf games and our quilting skills. We move further and further away from the city so that we can live in neighborhoods where people look like we do. Brothers and sisters, you have to admit that by sitting in this building today, and sitting in a church building, that there's got to be more to life than that. You have to admit that you've got to be motivated by more than the things that you can buy. Or the kind of life that you can live comfortably in. There's got to be more to it than that, don't you think? If you're like me, then you look outside the windows of this building and you look far towards the GTA and other cities and Guelph and who knows where else. And you look at all those people and something begins to happen to your soul. Prophet Jeremiah described it as a fire. It is bones. He said it this way, But if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. That's the fire of the Holy Spirit. It's exactly the kind of fire that drove the Apostle Paul on. That's what he's talking about when he says in verse 13, look what it says. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. He's quoting Psalm 116 here. Psalm 116 is about an afflicted man who's singing about, or who's who's created a song about the afflictions of this life and how no matter what afflictions come, he believes in the Lord. Paul's saying, yeah, I believe something, even though my life is full of affliction, and that belief is infinitely more powerful than the affliction that's in my life. I know something, Paul says. I know something transcendent. I know something that is so mind-changing and heart-changing that nothing is ever the same. What does he know? Verse 14. He knows that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul knows that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the transformative belief. And nothing is ever the same now that he knows that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. You ever think about that? Is that belief as transformative for you as it is for Paul? I want to talk about this for a bit. It's a little bit of a sidetrack, but let's, let's dwell on this for a bit. Think about it. If it's possible that somebody lived on this earth, died, and then rose from the dead, it means that nothing is ever the same you realize that? A person's attitude towards death, by the way, is pretty fundamental to how you view the world, isn't it? How a person understands death will explain who they are and what they believe. Faith and belief is bound up in what you believe about death. Death is a great inescapable universal in a human life, isn't it? And maybe a little bit more importantly for us today, the way you think about death will affect how you live today. It has to. That's true for everybody on this earth. Think about it. Even an atheist will admit that. An atheist believes that there is no life after death. He or she doesn't know that for sure, by the way. He or she believes it, because he or she has no proof of it. An atheist doesn't know if there's a God or not. They think there's no God, but they really don't know for sure. They believe that there's no God. And because an atheist believes that there's no God, and that this life is therefore everything to them. If death is the end of this life, then this life has to be made as good and as perfect as possible. Hence the belief in utopia often Climate change becomes apocalyptic in proportion because it threatens our happiness on this earth. Pursuing wealth and status is the thing, and for party now, for tomorrow we die. That's the atheist's belief in death affects how they live today. Another example, someone who believes in Hinduism, for example, will be, they believe in reincarnation. For them, death is not the end of their life. It's simply a process by which the, the next life begins. Well, that has a pretty strong effect on how you live today, doesn't it? According to Hinduism, the actions you do in this life affect how you're going to be reincarnated into the next life. So you better behave in this life to affect how you're going to be living in the next life. Again, The same thing is true. Muslims is another example. A Muslim follows the ways set out by Muhammad and the Quran. Why? Why does a Muslim do that? Because a Muslim believes that by following Allah, Allah might give them eternal life. They do not know for sure, by the way. And A Muslim has no assurance whatsoever that Allah will bless them. They work as hard as they can to impress Allah, but there's never a guarantee. That's what an imam told me. Radical Islam, interestingly, ups the ante, doesn't it? Radical Islam says that if you sacrifice your life for the sake of jihad, you might have a particularly good afterlife. The whole 70 virgins concept. And so a suicide bomber, curiously, is the clearest example of how someone's Attitude towards death completely controls how they live today. And so every person on this planet, brothers and sisters, needs to ask themselves the question what's going to happen to me when I die and after I die? And in order to answer that question, they need to know two things A, do I have the right answer to that question? And B, If I do have the right answer, what does it imply for how I live today? If you're going to have the right beliefs about Jesus and about the afterlife, you need to perhaps gather the available evidence, don't you? How do I start a belief? How do I believe in something? Well, I have to gather the the evidence about that belief. Faith is never an assumption without facts. A Muslim believes the words of Muhammad, an atheist trusts scientific analysis of our material world. That's their evidence. But a Christian, what does a Christian believe? What does a Christian come to believe? Wow. Oh. A Christian, like Paul, believes that Jesus Christ lived on this earth, died, and was raised from the dead. A Christian believes the evidence given by the writers of Scripture. A Christian is given the Spirit of God to nurture that very belief. And because a Christian believes that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, a Christian realizes that God must exist. Because who else could possibly have the power to raise you someone from the dead? No human being has that power except for Jesus who demonstrated the power with Lazarus. And if God exists, then we got to search to see that if... Did this God ever communicate with us? And the Christian then believes that the word of God, the scriptures, are God communicating to human beings. And the shocking part about the scriptures, brothers and sisters, is this. And I think over... When you grow up in the faith, sometimes you, you forget how shocking the Bible can be. We see this in Brampton. But when a Christian reads the scriptures, when you read the scriptures, there should be something that absolutely shocks you. You see, the shocking part of the scriptures isn't necessarily that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's not beyond the pale, for example, that God would raise Jesus if Jesus is God himself. It is shocking. But the truly shocking part of Scripture is that Scripture promises that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, God is willing to raise you from the dead. That is shocking. Because you're sinful, unlike Jesus And when the Christian asks at what cost he may receive the resurrection of the body, the Christian is told that Jesus Christ paid the cost and that we receive resurrection from the dead into heaven for free. That is insane to people who don't know Christianity. That does not make sense to the human mind. Look what it says, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great reversal. What Paul is saying in these two first two verses of this chapter here, or of our, our text, he's saying, look, I am, Paul's saying, and a, every Christian should be, stunned and overwhelmed by this truth Paul saying you should be so stunned and overwhelmed by that truth that you begin to live differently now right and this helps us answer the question that we asked at the beginning of our first point remember our question Paul's explaining why he'd be willing to suffer and die for the sake of preaching the gospel to strangers Why would he be willing to do that? And Paul's answer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the first answer. He actually believes that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the answer. That's why he's willing to do what he's doing. And then he believes that Jesus can and will raise him from the dead. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also, it says. And Paul's saying, yeah, now that I believe that, that has a radical effect on the way I live. He says, yeah, I'm willing to live in a radically sacrificial way now because I know that truth about my eternal destiny. He says it later in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. And he died for all, that's Jesus, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul's life isn't about himself. It's not about the things he can have in this life. His life is pointed upward, towards a far greater life waiting for him when he dies. He believes that his life is it all about Jesus and about what's going to happen in heaven. And so Paul's saying, look, the logical conclusion of that is to say, if, my, if I am given an eternity with Jesus for free, what should I be doing with my time? What should my life be about? Paul's saying, my life is about telling people about Jesus Christ. My life is about sharing the gospel with others. My life is about sacrificing myself for the love of other people. That's what this life is about, this short, temporary life. In verse 15, he says, Look, that way of living gives glory to... Right, look what he says. And I do all of this for your sake, so that His grace extends to more and more people and may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. He says, you know what, living this way glorifies God. Living a sacrificial life gives glory to God. Doing mission, telling people about Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have, gives glory to God. You know, at this point, again, you may be wondering, why am I spending so much time on suffering and sacrifice? Am I suggesting that the congregation of Alora is full of suffering and sacrifice? Am I suggesting that we need a new theology of suffering? The point I'm making is this, brothers and sisters. At least I can speak for Brampton. In Brampton, we are engaged in mission and outreach as we speak. On Sunday right now, or right today, The morning worship service they're having right now, there are guests there who do not know Jesus. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, it's not just enough. We share the gospel. If you share the gospel with someone, that is the beginning of your journey with that person. They come to faith, you've now got two to five years of discipleship and hard work in training and teaching that person. And that process of discipleship, the process of sharing the gospel with people is difficult and painful and challenging. So many parts of it suck. People are not nice. Immature believers are not easy to be around. There's also a great beauty in the work. There's no question about it, but it's a hard, difficult work. And the problem with a lot of this mission and church planning is that people think it's fun. They think it's cool. Many people have formed certain church plants in certain places, and they think that it's going to be a great time. They think it's going to be, there's lots of different words I could use, it's the new cool thing to do. It's what all the cool kids are doing. Frankly, that's a myth. And if you think that's what mission is about, you're going to miss the point and get pretty disillusioned pretty quickly. It requires every part of your body. It requires everything that you are and more. Now let me turn it to you. It says here that doing mission sacrificially glorifies God. That means that if you're not doing it, You are robbing God of glory. And so, as far as I'm concerned, this text applies very directly. And it says this. It says, if you actually believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're going to want to sacrificially share it with people who do not know it. And not only are you going to want to share it with them, you're going to want to walk beside them until they're mature and beyond. You're going to want to invite the people that come to faith into your church and you're going to love on them and you're going to give up your own desires for their sake. Including some of your precious traditions. That is the call of the gospel. And if you think it's anything less, you're robbing God of glory. Brothers and sisters, in Brampton, we've had to learn this the hard way. My suggestion is that in Laura, maybe you haven't learned it yet. But you need to. it's not my opinion. That is the word of God. You see, sometimes in the Canadian Reformed Church, we've grown up with the idea that obeying the Ten Commandments is what's required of us. And it is. But the Bible has a lot more to say than the law of God. The Bible demands everything of you. And sometimes I wonder, I wonder if our possessions have become more important than the gospel I wonder if we're forgetting what, why we sit in this building. The Apostle Paul says, "Go back to the Lord." And this is the, the great irony of this passage is what comes in point two. Because in point two, we're going to learn that sacrificing for the Lord is not joyless and it's not something that robs us of everything that's good in life. In point two, we're going to learn. That sacrificing everything that you have for the Lord is the greatest joy that you can ever possess. Look what it says. Look what it says in verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul started the chapter with those very words. We do not lose heart. And his final words of this chapter four, Paul's going to give us his final thoughts on why he's encouraged in the face of great trial. And Paul's using these classic dualisms. On the, outward, on the outside, I'm, I'm wasting away, but on the inside I'm being renewed." What Paul's basically saying is he's saying, "Yeah, you know what? My life is nasty. My wife is full of sufferings and afflictions and sacrifice. He says, "Yeah. he says, "And they hurt." I've been stoned nearly to death, right? That's the Apostle Paul. Mobs beat him, almost beat him to death on more than one occasion. He's whipped by the authorities. He says, you know what? Ignore that. Forget it. Lift your eyes beyond this world to something infinitely more beautiful. He's saying, first of all, look at what the Holy Spirit is building inside of you. Look at what the Holy Spirit is renewing you into. He's renewing you into this beautiful creature. This, he's renewing you to be more and more like God. That's what He's doing in you. And those afflictions are shaping you into such a way that you're more and more like God. And He's saying, yeah, the trials are all worth it. If it means that my inward inner self, my, my godly desires can be renewed, And he says in verse 17, this might, or what does he say? This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. By saying that, Paul is not saying that the the trials of this life are nothing. He's saying the trials and sufferings of this life are insignificant compared to. To what you're going to have in the next life. The glory of eternity outweighs the suffering of this life in magnitude. It's like a scale. Eternity crashes the one side of the scale to the ground. And brothers and sisters, I want you to think about that. Think about eternity with God for a second. We don't do this enough, do we? What is eternity with God going to be like, you think? you ever thought about that? Think of a place where the singing is so beautiful that it causes you to weep with joy. Or people can sing in four and eight part harmonies. Every bit of music you hear is perfectly on key. Like an orchestra that's better than anything you've ever seen. Think of a place where you can walk with your Lord Jesus every day, basking in the radiance of a perfect love. A love that you've never seen before in this world. Have you ever been loved so totally that it brings tears to your eyes? You will in heaven. Think of a place where no one ever feels lonely or neglected, or fragile, or abandoned, hungry, where no one ever needs life renewal because nothing's ever happened to them that would require that need. Think of what would we like to live in this world after it's been perfected. Think of the beauty that you see outside the window. The world of stunning mountains and bubbling brooks. The beauty of our world is perfectly harmonious and blessed by God. You ever think about that? You see, by knowing Jesus Christ and believing in Him, that world is given to you for free. Not entirely for free. It came at a great cost of Jesus dying. And so Paul says, look, When you live this life, Paul says, in verse 18, he says, look. Look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Fix your, this is the command of the passage, fix your eyes on Christ and his things. That's how we live this life. That's the command. Don't fix your eyes on the troubles of the world. They're real, they're hard, they're very difficult, they're crippling. But don't fix your eyes on them or your possessions. Fix your eyes on Jesus and what he did for you. That's the point. Paul says, that's how I survive my afflictions. That's what motivates me to tell my people about. Jesus. And so brothers and sisters, look, move forward, fixing your eyes on Christ. And when you fix your eyes on Jesus, it's somehow in your, the death of your soul you become freer and freer to live the words of John 15. Great love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Or the words of Jesus in Mark 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life on this earth will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. The great majestic vista of eternity with Christ is the sustaining belief of the Christian people. No obstacle, no plot, nothing can take it from us. As I've said in the theme, though you suffer now for the gospel, take perspective by looking up at what Christ how Christ will raise you up out of this world into an eternity. So brothers and sisters, let that vision inspire you to drive forward in the, in the sake of the gospel. If you're here today and maybe you don't know Jesus, consider what we read in God's word today. Consider what your current beliefs do for you or don't do for you. Consider whether you have proof for what you believe. Someday you will die. Allah can't save you. The gods of Hinduism cannot save you. The death of an atheist should be too horrifying to ever contemplate. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, brothers and sisters. He can raise and will raise you too. Jesus Christ promises an eternity in heaven with him to every single person who believes in Him. Fix your eyes on that. Come to Jesus, if you haven't already. Live for Jesus. And He will give you everything He's promised, and probably more. In such a way, if that's the vision, brothers and sisters, you can live now, greatly sacrificially, in such a way that everyone in your life is blessed by your devotion. Brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on him. He will never let you down. Amen.